Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's message of the week. If you'd like to connect with us, please do get in touch at hello at hopeharrogate.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We are in our series, um, Building a Community of Hope, as we journey through Nehemiah together. Um, And what we're going to see today is that Nehemiah is about to step out in faith in a truly remarkable way over and over again. First of all, he is going to ask the king uh, for his favour. Now, you know, for us, we have Queen Elizabeth II, and she is a jolly nice lady. You know, you probably wouldn't feel too nervous or embarrassed to be asking Liz for some for a favour. You would expect her to be kind towards you. She's a good Christian lady, as her Christmas broadcast shows every year. Uh, you wouldn't be bothered. But what you need to realise is, that Nehemiah is not going to Queen Elizabeth II. He is going to King Artaxerxes of the Persians. And what I wanted to do this morning was to show you a picture from the film 300 of King Xerxes. Have you seen that film? Get some hands in the air. Anyone seen that film? I looked frantically for, frantically? I didn't. I looked, you know, for a few minutes for a picture of King Xerxes from that film. Uh, And I couldn't really find one that was appropriate. Uh, But what you need to realise is in that film, he arrives against the 300 warriors of Sparta and he's being carried on an enormous silver throne by a load of slaves. And it is ginormous. And he is tall. He's big. He's a god amongst men. Anyone know that scene? Going to get some nods, some yeses. I I looked for a photo and I couldn't find one like a picture. And I thought I probably couldn't show a clip of the film 300 in a family church service. So you don't get a picture, but hopefully I'm painting it for you. Nehemiah is not going to um, a normal person. He's going to a God amongst men who strikes fear into the hearts of people. The film 300 features King Xerxes, who was King Artaxerxes' father. And so, of course, it's a slightly mythical story, um, a slightly over-the-top representation, but it does give you some insight into the way that kings were held and pictured in that time. He goes to a king like that and asks for his favour. It was a gutsy move. It was a pretty dangerous move. Uh, Once he's there, uh, he keeps on asking for favour and the king keeps giving it to him. Then you're going to see him go off to Jerusalem to embark upon the enormous rebuild of a derelict and devastated city. It's a courageous act of faith, if ever I've seen one. Not only does he go to rebuild it, actually, he goes to enlist the disheartened and downtrodden people who are in Jerusalem to do the task. Nehemiah in chapter two, as we're about to read, he goes again and again in enormous acts of faith, all because God has put audacious hope in his heart. God has put audacious hope in Nehemiah's heart. And we're going to see in chapter two, later on towards the end of the chapter, Nehemiah gives a prophetic call to the people of Jerusalem. And that same audacious hope that is in his heart is in that moment imparted into their hearts as a community and it moves them to action. Friends, quite frankly, what happens in their hearts is as miraculous 
as the favour he's shown by King Artaxerxes when he asks the question. So you ready to read it? I've given you a quick overview. You'll know what you're reading now. Get your Bible out. Nehemiah chapter 2. We are going to read it together. Um, here we go. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. It's worth noting here that although this chapter doesn't say how long Nehemiah asked for, uh, you'll find in chapter 5 and again in chapter 13, it seems that his visit lasts 12 years in the initial phase. So we presume he says here to the king, 12 years, and it pleased the king to send him. It's worth noting just how remarkable his favour is. I also said to him, King Artaxerxes, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates? so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence that I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official, you're going to hear those names a lot in this book, when they hear about it, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I'd not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except for the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool but there was not enough room for my mount to get through so I went up the valley by night examining the wall. Finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews, or the priests, or nobles, or officials, or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. 
I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and they've got a friend now, Geshem the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So we're doing our series, aren't we, in Nehemiah called Building a Community of Hope. And friends, here is the fundamental key that holds it all together. If you want to build a community of hope, then you have to have hope. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Turn to the person next to you if you're with someone else. Tell them, if you want to build a community of hope, you've got to have hope. Remember, I can see you, so I can check if you're doing it. If you're on your own, why don't you get yourself in the chat box? You can tell me, Adam, if you want to build a community of hope, you need to have hope. Yeah. It is a pretty fundamental key. You want to build a community of hope, you've got to have hope. And hope for Nehemiah is that he has a conviction about the future. A conviction about the future. Thanks, everyone, telling me in the chat box. It's distracting. You have got to have hope if you want to build a community of hope, though. So it is true. Amen. Uh, Nehemiah has a conviction about the future. What, what's he doing? He's expecting the vision that is in his heart with confidence. He has an expectation that he is confident about with regards to the future. If you want to build a community of hope, that's what you've got to have. I found a dictionary definition that was this for hope, which is really helpful. Hope is to cherish a vision with anticipation. So it's not just to have a daydream about it, but it's to cherish that daydream and more than that, to anticipate it, to await its happening, to believe it's going to happen. And in fact, begin to live in light of what is going to happen now because you so cherish it in your heart. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He has a vision and he is so convinced it's going to happen. He's cherished it in his heart. He's anticipated it and it's driven him to action. Here is my first point. Oh, we got that title, title slide. Today's talk is about living with audacious hope. And my first point is this, friends. It is God's will for you to live with audacious hope. If you're writing notes down today, which you really should be, because I'm about to give you five points uh, then you need to write this one down. First of all, it is God's will for you to live with audacious hope. What do I mean by that? We talk a lot about vision in our kind of Christian world. We talk a lot about calling and going to the nations and doing great feats of faith for God. And I am absolutely talking about those things. God has a call on your life 
and you will get to see the kingdom of God break out. I do truly believe that. And he wants us to live with hope for that. But even more fundamentally than that, God wants you to live with the audacious hope in your heart that because Jesus died and because he then rose to life, he will return. He will destroy evil. Revelation puts it as destroy the destroyers of the earth. That's what Jesus will do when he returns. All the things that destroy the world will be destroyed by Jesus when he returns so that there'll be no more pain, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more death. God wants you to live with that audacious hope in your heart. To live in the hope that the kingdom is here and will one day fully come and will redeem every sphere of life and part of creation. There's not a bit of the world that won't be utterly transformed by the kingdom of God. That is an audacious hope. That is what we're called to live with a confident expectation of. That is the vision we are called to cherish with anticipation. It's why we believe that God heals today because we so anticipate that day when there is no sickness, that sickness breaks in now. Amen. It's God's will for you to live with audacious hope in your heart, to live in hope that God will continue to build his church, which is the city of God. You need to bear that in mind as we're reading Nehemiah. The city of God is the church and that the nations will come and people from every tribe and language will join the city of God. They will be folded in. God wants you to live with the hope that the pain of now is not the final word. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes this, verse 17 and 18. I'm sorry, I've not got it on the slide. He says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Man, that is hope. Verse 18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Do you get the irony of the statement? We fix our eyes on the very thing we can't see. We expect with confidence the thing we can't see to come. We treat it as more real than what we're experiencing, such as the conviction of hope in our life, such as the anticipation of the thing we are confident about happening. We live in hope that the pain of now is not the final word. And so my question today is this question. How do we live with such an audacious hope? What can we learn from Nehemiah about living in the time in between where God has put hope in our hearts, but we have not yet seen it? Because there's a danger, isn't there, that such incredible hope might suffocate us. Could lead to us ending up disappointed when we don't see it coming into being. How do we live with hope in such a way that we're stewarding it well, sustaining it, and more than just sustaining it so that there's hope in our heart, how do we carry it into every sphere of life so that it impacts the world around us in our everyday? How do we live with audacious hope? Five points 
and uh, I'll talk quickly. Uh, number one, hope does not hope does not rush. Hope does not rush. It rests. You should really write these down. They're really good. I borrowed them all. Nehemiah arrives, verse 11, in Jerusalem. And what does it say he did? First thing he does when he arrives in Jerusalem, he rests for three days. He's just traveled either 500 miles through the desert or between eight and 900 miles through the fertile crescent of the Middle East, which is easier going, but almost twice the distance. It's quite the journey. Do you know what? He'll have arrived in Jerusalem tired. And because he's tired, he therefore rests. Despite the hope in his heart that has driven him to act in courageous faith in asking King Artaxerxes to send him, the hope that's driven him to travel that far to come to a derelict city to rebuild it, in spite of the passion that is within his heart to see this thing happen, he arrives and is tired and he rests. He's just entered Jerusalem with the grandest of entrances. You know, the text tells us that King Artaxerxes sends army officers and cavalry with him. He's the new governor of Jerusalem. He's arrived spectacularly, quite the escort. Everyone's hopes will have um, risen in that moment of seeing this man come. One of their own has come to, to care for them, to rule, for, rule over them. But he just rests for three days because he's tired. It's likely that one of those days was the Sabbath. And so he rested on it. But two of them probably weren't. Well, two of them definitely weren't. Maybe three of them weren't. Uh, and the Sabbath is a principle which is built into the very fabric of creation. That God created for seven, six days and rested on the seventh. He builds it into the national calendar of the people of Israel. You work the fields for six years and let them rest in the seventh. It's built into creation that we need rest. Rest is a good thing. Rest is a good thing. In fact, Hebrews 4 says that the position of Christians is one of rest. We have entered into God's true Sabbath rest, that we're no longer those who need to strive and flog ourselves. We're those who can truly rest. Friends, here's the truth. Busyness is not a virtue. Being busy is not something to be proud of. Being tired is not the state that we should exist in. It's okay to rest. More than that, it's good to rest. God tells you to rest. And resting is important. As I was preparing for today, I came across this list of seven things that you shouldn't do when you're overtired. And I thought it was very good. So I'll share it with you. Seven things not to do when overtired. It's written on a tiny little post-it note. Number one, you shouldn't make important decisions when you're overtired. It's a good one, right? Number two, you shouldn't write important letters, emails or social media posts. 
Number three, you shouldn't launch new projects. Number four, you shouldn't shut down old projects. Number five, when you're overtired, you should not quit. Number six, when you're overtired, you shouldn't assess somebody else's spiritual condition. Number seven, you shouldn't assess your own spiritual condition. It's a good list, isn't it? Why? Because tiredness, friends, warps our perception. And it diminishes our ability. Nehemiah has got a heck of a job on his hands, and so he rests. Second thing. Number two. Hope does not rush, it prays. Hope doesn't rush, it prays. In chapter one, we saw Nehemiah, just slipped on my armchair. Uh, in chapter one, we saw Nehemiah stop to pray. He, friend, his brother Hanani comes and tells him about Jerusalem. He's gutted and he stops activity to pray and to fast and to mourn for the state of Jerusalem. We see that Nehemiah stops to pray. In chapter two, we find that he prays without stopping. He's serving in the king's courts. He is asked a question by the king and it says, I prayed and then I responded to the king. It's where we get the concept of arrow prayers from, is this verse in Nehemiah, if you ever heard of that concept. Important, crucial moment and he fires a prayer up to God. I imagine the prayer went something like this, help! And then he answers. Nehemiah stops to pray and he prays without stopping there's a story I, I heard in the past of two men chopping wood and uh, one man worked all day long chopping wood chopping wood chopping wood the second man he had a break every 15 minutes and at the end of the day it came about that they were comparing how much wood they chopped and the man who had been cutting wood all day had a smaller pile of chopped wood than the man who had had a break every 15 minutes. And he said to the man who'd had a break every 15 minutes, how have you chopped more wood than me? You had a break every 15 minutes. And the man looked at him and he said, oh, it's because every time I had a break, I sharpened my saw. Prayer sharpens the blade. You can get all busy in action, but there are things that can be done in prayer that can never be done in action. Martin Luther, he put it like this, brilliant quote. He said, I have so much business that I cannot get on without spending three hours in prayer first. And so the challenge that presents to us from Nehemiah's prayer life is this, are we truly praying the hopes in our heart? Nehemiah does not rush in in hope. No, he prays. If our hearts are full of hope, hope for the kingdom of God to come in a particular sphere of life and society, hopes for Jesus to return, hopes for loved ones, hopes for justice and breakthrough, are we truly praying those hopes? Because there are things that are done in prayer that can be never done by action. Hope doesn't rush, it prays. Number three, hope doesn't rush, 
it learns. Hope does not rush, it learns. You'll find this in verses 11 through to 16. Nehemiah quietly goes out at night without telling anybody to assess the situation. It says, I was the only one on a mount. And that's probably because he wanted to be quiet and he wanted to be um, subtle rather than he was showing off that he was the only one who had a horse or a donkey. He's trying not to attract attention. He needs to learn what the situation is. A cupbearer in the ancient world was not the job for a slave. It was the job for someone you trusted with your life. It was a position of high responsibility. In fact, in some contemporary kingdoms to Persia at this point in time, the cupbearer was the second in command in the nation. I'm not saying Nehemiah was second in command of the Persian empire, but he was certainly a trustworthy man, certainly carried responsibility. His job went far beyond tasting the wine. We see as we go through this book, he was clearly administratively skilled. He clearly had a God-given vision. He knew how to do many things. But when he arrives in Jerusalem, he has no idea what is on the ground. He's never been there before, never in his whole life. And so he quietly, after spending his three days resting, goes out to assess the situation. He goes to learn. Skill and cool were not enough. He had to understand what was needed. Hope doesn't rush, it learns. More than that, Nehemiah has his whole life been learning in exile in the king of Persia's court. He's been serving an enemy empire, learning his whole life. He's watched the mechanics of the biggest and strongest empire in the world of its day. He's seen how it works. He's learned all manner of things. He's led many people in his role as the cupbearer. He has learned somewhere else so that he can walk in and see what God has put hope in his heart for happen. Sometimes we think we've got a call from God and that's enough. And sometimes it is. But sometimes God wants to position us somewhere so that we can learn things that we need to learn, that we need to know, before we can take on the task he's calling us to. Hope doesn't rush in, it learns. You know, I'm 36. I'm in my 10th year of working for Hope Church. I'm not so sure that should be the norm. Like I spent five years, every hour of my working life, trying to work out how to communicate things about God to totally different groups and rooms. It's, it has stood me in great stead in the last 10 years. I went somewhere else and learned how to do it at first. But there are all manner of things that I wish I'd been able to learn before coming into this role. And I want to speak to anyone, maybe if you're a teenager, maybe kids, maybe you feel like there's a call of God on your life to lead in his church in the future. Maybe you feel called to plant a church. You could be an adult, a teenager, you could be a child. I want to encourage you that just because God's called you, it doesn't mean you have to do it right now. Actually, there are many things that God wants to position us to learn in other settings so that we can be far better when he does bring us out into the light in terms of doing what he's called us to do. Some of us, some of you, maybe you listening right now, you're going to get positioned in cutthroat business and you're going to wonder why, am I, why on earth am I amongst such mercenary practices? It's because God wants to teach you some stuff. 
so that when you come into what he's calling you to, you've got wisdom that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Maybe you're going to end up in law or accountancy or education or local politics, national politics, healthcare. You're going to end up in some other sphere in order to learn stuff that's required for what God is going to call you to in his church at a later point. Maybe you're going to learn stuff serving in the church that you're going to use in another sphere of life at a later point in your life. You're going to learn stuff by leading a small group that's going to stand you in great stead when the opportunity for promotion at work comes and God positions you in a position of influence in your workplace. Sometimes we want to rush into what God has called us to just because we've got a hope in our heart. And we need to realize that God has much to teach us. The Bible is littered with people who are made to wait decades in order to do what God has called them to do. Hope doesn't rush, it learns. Nehemiah doesn't walk in and go, hey guys, don't worry, I'm here. I know what I'm doing. No, he learns. He learns about the situation he's entered. Hope doesn't rush, it learns. Number four. Number four. Hope doesn't rush, it trusts. So we've had hope doesn't rush, it rests. Hope does not rush, it prays. Hope doesn't rush, it learns. Now hope doesn't rush, it trusts. Nehemiah is a very competent man. I hope I've just made that point in the last bit. He has a letter from the most powerful king in the region in his back pocket saying that he can do whatever he wants. But his trust is not in himself, nor in King Artaxerxes. His trust is in God. He's been given a hope from God and he trusts implicitly that God is going to do what he's put in Nehemiah's heart to do. You see this in verse 18. He's talking to the people of Jerusalem who don't really know him. And he could point at anything to say, you should listen to me. I'm cupbearer to the king, don't you know? I've been interested with this. I've got a letter from the king. He even let me get wood from the royal part. No, no. What does he point to first in verse 18? Friends, the gracious hand of our God is upon me. God has given me favour. God is going to do it. He's not banking on himself. He's not pointing at human approval. No, God is going to do it. Sam Ballot and his bunch of um, uh, opponents I was going to use a more colourful word. The people who oppose Nehemiah, they come to him at the end of this chapter and they're like, what are you doing? They start spreading lies. They start trying to sow seeds of discord and dissent amongst the people. And how does Nehemiah respond? He's got a letter from the king in his pocket that lets him do what he wants to do. But is that what he points to first? What does he point to first? Verse 20. The God of heaven will give us success. Nehemiah trusts implicitly that God is going to do it. He's a competent man. He knows what he's good at. He's going to, you're going to see him lead by, you're going to see him lead by example. You're going to see him supervise. He doesn't really get his hands dirty a lot in this book. He's going to order other people around. He's going to lead in terms of what it means to rebuild this city. Yet what we see is that he is humble because he knows that above him is God and that God is going to do it, not him. 
He's got a role to play. God has called him to it. There's a hope in his heart, but he's trusting God, not his own competence, nor the approval of human beings, but God. He's trusting God. He's trusting God, not his call. He's trusting God, not his ability. Hope doesn't rush. It trusts. So we've had hope doesn't rush. It rests. Hope doesn't rush. It prays. Hope does not rush. It learns. Hope does not rush. It trusts. And finally, hope does not delay. It acts courageously. Nehemiah prays for four months, prays and fasts. And then he resolves that he's going to do something about it. We saw this in chapter one, verse 11. He prays, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then he goes into the court of King Artaxerxes and allows his sadness to show. That is a gutsy move. His neck is on the line. King Artaxerxes could have got him killed there on the spot for such insolence as bringing sadness to the court of the king. He, he acts courageously. He resolves and he makes his move. The king replies and he carries on asking. He asks and he asks and he keeps on asking and he gets quite the haul. In fact, he gets officers and cavalry to accompany him, which he never even asked for. Hope does not delay. It doesn't spurn the opportunity. It acts courageously. He gets to Jerusalem and yes, he rests three days. Yes, he learns what's necessary, but he doesn't dilly dally. He gets up in the public square and he says, hey, guys, come on. Jerusalem is a disgrace. This is not befitting to our king. Let's do this. Again, he's putting his neck on the line because these people are disheartened and downtrodden. And yet the miraculous event happens that God imparts the hope that's in Nehemiah's heart into their heart. And they jump in two footed. They don't rush. Oh, sorry. They don't delay. They rush also just as Nehemiah has chosen to lay hold of the moment. Friends, hope doesn't rush, but it also doesn't delay. Proverbs 13 verse 12. Many of you will know this verse. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that if we hope for the same thing for a really long time, we'll end up sick. What it means is that if you don't lay hold of the hope in your heart, you will end up feeling sick. If you don't take the opportunity to reach for the hope that God has put in your heart, you will end up sick in heart. Because if you never act towards your hope, then your hope will never be realised. We're going to see the incredible parallel of God's sovereign action and human responsibility throughout this book. We see it here. Just as Nehemiah seizes the moment and doesn't delay, the people, they don't delay. They seize the moment as well. Verse 18 in the NIV, it doesn't quite convey it properly. But if you read the ESV or the NASB, it says, let us arise and build. And it says, so they strengthened their hands 
for the good work. This disheartened people, they hear faith, they see the vision and they go, yes, and they encourage themselves and they begin. They do not delay. And here's the interesting thing. We're going to see it more next week as Pete takes us through chapter three. The people of the city are filled with hope, but they give themselves to serve the vision of another person. Do you get that? It cuts against our individual world. I think we'll talk more about this next week. They see that God's gracious hand is truly upon Nehemiah and they throw their lot in with him. They don't go off and go, oh, yes, God has called me to do my great feat for the Lord. No, no, they, they're happy to get behind another person's God-given vision. See, hope doesn't delay. It acts courageously. So we've seen. Oh, you can't quite see all of that. We've seen hope doesn't rush. It rests. Hope doesn't rush. It prays. Hope doesn't rush, it learns. Hope doesn't rush, it trusts. Hope does not delay, it acts courageously. And so my question for you this morning is, where are you in this? Is it this morning that actually you need God by the Holy Spirit to pour hope afresh into your heart? Because you haven't got audacious hope in your heart. You've settled for your lot in life and you're sucking it up. Maybe you need God to put hope in your heart, just as he did with Nehemiah. Is it rest that God is speaking to you about? Have you been running around like a blue bottomed fly and you just need to take note a second that God is calling you to rest because you're no use to anyone if you're tired? If you didn't watch the hilarious update that Ella and I did this week about the six month war, let me encourage you, go find it in your email and watch it because we are in difficult times. It's okay to feel tired. Everyone is tired right now. It's hard living in crisis for six months. It is. And it's okay to rest. It's okay to rest. It's also not okay to rest forever. Nehemiah rests three days. Some of us are more susceptible to being lazy, some of us to overwork. I have to say both. Please hear the one that you should hear, not the one that you want to hear. Is it that you need to rest? Are you challenged, as I deeply am, that we need to be those who truly pray for the hope that God has put in our heart? Nehemiah's life gets turned upside down by prayer as he pushes into what God's called him to. Are you truly praying for the hope and the vision that God's put in your heart? Are you around at 9.30 on a Tuesday morning? Come pray. We're going to pray for revival this Tuesday. Like, we, we generally in the West, we're far more at danger at prayer being too far down our list of priorities than we are overemphasizing its importance. So, so when I ask the loving question, why weren't you at the first thing last Sunday night? Do you fancy coming to the next first thing at the beginning of November? Maybe you want to hear that in the love and the grace that it's offered in alongside this challenge, that if we want to be people of hope, then we need to be people who pray together. 
when are you going to go prayer walking this week? Hashtag hope mission possible. Is it your season for learning actually in the quiet? Maybe you this morning have been given peace because you recognize God's positioned you somewhere to learn for this season. Maybe you need to go and learn somewhere. Maybe you need to change your heart posture to learn and be less impatient. Maybe God's put his finger on where your trust is this morning. Has your trust been in yourself? Has it been in human approval? If only I can convince Adam and Pete this is a good idea, then it will happen. Hey, you can convince me it's a good idea. It ain't going to make it happen. God makes it happen. Where's your trust? Is it in God? Maybe today is the day that the Holy Spirit is giving you one of those divine kick up the backsides. Where you've been hoping for something. God has been speaking to you about something. You've been praying, you've been learning. And today is the moment to courageously act. Maybe this morning is the moment to resolve in your heart that something needs to happen. And just as Nehemiah did, you need to force the issue the next time you're in the courts of the king. Maybe it's time to lay hold of the opportunity to see hope come to pass. Friends, we have to lay hold of hope. How do we live with audacious hope? in our hearts we rest we pray we learn we trust we act courageously let me pray for us very quickly and then we'll hand back over to ben to lead us in a song of response it's not sunday communities today we're going to worship jesus together i want to encourage you to do business with god in that time and if you do feel like god is putting his finger heavily on something Hey, send me a private chat message, get in touch with your midweek group leader, get other people praying for you too. Don't miss out on this opportunity as God lays hold of you this morning to lay hold of the hope that he's put in your heart. Why don't we turn our eyes to Jesus for a second and just pray very simply. Father, we trust you. We thank you that it is your will for us to live with audacious hope, that hope does not disappoint when our hope is in you. Father, we recognize we live in difficult, challenging times. We recognize that there is lots that we cannot do, but we know that there is much that we can do and that nothing is impossible for you. And Father, I pray right now, I pray for us as a church community, pray for anyone tuning in today. God, I pray that you would clearly lay your hand upon uh, the aspect of these lessons that we can learn from Nehemiah that we need to know. God, there is a lot that I've said this morning, but I'm trusting you to bring to bear the thing that each person needs to hear. God, we're praying for hope to rise. God, we're praying for your kingdom to come. It blows our minds that you want to involve us in it. And we pray that this morning will be a morning of laying hold of what you've put in our hearts for us to lay hold of. Father, I pray for anyone this morning who is feeling hopeless, that you would pour your spirit into their hearts, that they would know again your love, that they would know again the hope that is implicit in your love. Jesus died, but friends, he rose again.
and that changes everything. If Jesus has conquered death, then nothing is impossible and we can have hope for the future, regardless of coronavirus, regardless of the balance in our monetary accounts, regardless of what relationships we think are broken down. If Jesus rose from the dead, everything has changed. We can have hope. God, for those who, for those who uh, wouldn't say that they have a personal relationship with you yet, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them this morning, that the hope of your kingdom would be revealed in their heart, that they would long for that world without pain or sickness or suffering or death, that they'd realise that it's found in Jesus, that you can set us free. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you, send me a message in the chat. Get in touch with us, hopeharrogate.co.uk forward slash connect. We would love to connect with you. We'd love to help you get off to the best start you can as someone trusting in Jesus.